Welcome to NKF's Kidney Policy Podcast, where we break down the complicated world of kidney care and discuss policy ideas to improve it. This podcast is a project of the National Kidney Foundation, the largest, most comprehensive, and long-standing patient-centric organization dedicated to the awareness, prevention, and treatment of kidney disease in the United States. Today on episode three of the podcast, we are joined by Miriam Godwin, NKF's Director of Health Policy, and we will also hear from kidney patient advocate Elizabeth Fortune, who will give us her personal perspective of what it's like to be a patient on dialysis. So today we're going to take a deep dive into what dialysis is like from a policy perspective, from a science perspective, and then from a patient perspective. So Miriam, can you kick us off and give us a little bit of the background on like what exactly do we mean when we are talking about dialysis? So dialysis is a method of filtering the blood in people who have kidney failure. So it essentially replaces the function of the filtration capacity of the kidneys. Dialysis was invented in the Netherlands during World War II. It's also known as continuous renal replacement therapy. And basically what dialysis does is it helps keep the body in balance. So dialysis removes waste, salt, extra water, and it prevents extra fluid from building up in the body. So it keeps certain chemicals in the blood in balance, such as potassium, sodium, and bicarbonate, it also helps to control blood pressure. So without dialysis or a kidney transplant, someone who has kidney failure will die. I know most people will think of dialysis clinics. You know, if you drive around, you might see them in a shopping mall around your town, but there are actually different types of dialysis, correct? Yeah, there are two main types of dialysis, hemodialysis and peritoneal dialysis. In hemodialysis, a machine that acts as an artificial kidney, known as a hemodialyzer, is used to remove waste and extra chemicals and fluid from your body. Most people who undergo hemodialysis will visit a dialysis clinic uh, three days a week for four hours at a time. Currently, almost 85% of patients in the U.S. do dialysis in an in-center clinic, and they have to travel to that in-center clinic for their treatment. So here in the U.S., that in-center hemodialysis model represents most of what patients are experiencing. But if I understand correctly, around the world, peritoneal and home hemodialysis are actually more prevalent. Can you tell us a little more about that? Yeah. So the U.S. does lag behind other developed countries in patients using these more flexible options. Um, Home hemodialysis is very similar to the dialysis that's performed in a facility. But the patient has been trained to hook themselves up to the dialysis machine and to operate the machinery at home. In peritoneal dialysis, the inside lining of your own belly acts as a natural filter. A catheter is surgically implanted into someone's stomach and a sterile cleaning fluid is pumped in. After the stomach lining completes its filtration process, the waste is flushed out via the fluid leaving the body through the catheter. And this continues in cycle. Some people perform continuous ambulatory peritoneal dialysis, which does not actually involve a machine, and it can be done during normal activities, such as work or school. The process is usually done several times a day while the patient is awake. Each fluid exchange takes about 30 to 40 minutes, so people can do it during a break or at mealtimes. Other people do automated or nocturnal peritoneal dialysis, where they hook up to a cycling machine that does the fluid exchange for them. 
Many people do this exchange overnight, hence the nocturnal designation. These types of peritoneal dialysis can be performed at home or at work, and many patients who do peritoneal dialysis are able to maintain employment and have more flexibility in their treatment schedule. Okay, so just to review for everyone who's listening, you've got hemodialysis, which is performed in a dialysis facility, but there's also home hemodialysis, which is similar, but performed at home, and peritoneal dialysis, which is your body does the filtration for you, correct? Yep, that's the basic breakdown. Okay, so now that we understand kind of the technicalities behind how it works, What does this look like? How long is the average patient in the U.S. on dialysis? Well, unfortunately, dialysis will keep you alive, but it is not a cure for kidney failure. Dialysis only replaces the filtration that the kidney does of your blood. It does not actually replace the many other things that your kidneys do. So the closest thing to a cure for kidney failure is a transplant. It has much better long-term outcomes and it improves somebody's quality of life. But the list of people waiting for a transplant is far, far longer than our supply of available organs. So many people will remain on dialysis for the rest of their life. One study has found that 60% of patients undergoing in-center dialysis in the U.S. died within five years and 19% died within five to 10 years of starting dialysis. So in general, the outcomes are really poor. With some states like California have as much as a 10-year wait for a transplant, um, many people will not survive long enough to obtain one. And that's assuming that they're even healthy when they start dialysis. And we do know that most patients who are in kidney failure have other conditions like diabetes, hypertension, and heart disease. Yeah. So by the time the average patient starts dialysis, they're already in a weakened state. And dialysis itself takes a really heavy toll on someone. So people who are on dialysis report fatigue and muscle cramps, nausea, itchy skin, sleep apnea, blood pressure irregularity, and fluid retention. And this is really because while your kidneys function 24-7, someone who's on dialysis is only getting treatment three times a week for three to four hours at a time with some some different figures in the prescription for people who are on home dialysis. So it's just not the same thing as having a functioning kidney. Someone on home dialysis, as I said, can do the treatment more frequently, and so they might have fewer side effects. Okay, yeah. So I think that sets a good baseline for the person I would like to introduce next. I would love to bring Elizabeth Fortune, our patient advocate, on to tell us a little bit more about her kidney journey and what her life is like as a patient on dialysis. Thank you, Elizabeth, so much for agreeing to do this podcast today. We really appreciate your time. And if you could just introduce yourself to our listeners. Sure. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, My name is Elizabeth Fortune, and I live in Arkansas. I've been working with the NKF for about three years now, I think, as a kidney advocate. And um, I've been on dialysis for not quite eight years. And You know, a lot of what we talk about with kidney failure is kind of like specific kidney diseases or like the progression of kidney disease. I have kind of a different story. I had cancer and I went through two years of chemo and radiation and um, I had two bone marrow transplants. When I went into kidney failure, the doctors thought it was they just decided it was like all the chemo and everything that I'd been through for two years had just completely wiped out 
my kidneys. It was really just one day I woke up in the hospital while I was recovering from that bone marrow transplant. And the doctor looked at me and he said, you're in total kidney failure and you need to think about starting dialysis like today. So you're in the hospital, you're recovering from, you know, this other treatment, you're dealing with this other illness. And then all of a sudden this happens. So what, like what happened next? I ended up being in the hospital for a lot longer than what we had anticipated because of the kidney failure. And at the time I thought it was, and, and I think the doctors believed too, that this was just a temporary situation my kidneys were going to bounce back, but they never did. And so I had to make that transition when I finally got out of the hospital to an outpatient dialysis center. And that was just, that was a huge wake up call to me. Like, I mean, I didn't even know what dialysis was. So to be quite honest, I was not in a good headspace. And I can see a lot of times where the doctors and the nurses tried to talk to me about different treatment options, my future on dialysis. Cause I would tell the nurses, I'm like, Oh no, you don't understand. This is temporary. That's a big thing to tell someone. And absolutely. I can believe that a patient hearing that is going to need to process that and what that actually means. So you've actually had experience with a couple different types of dialysis. Can you tell me a little bit about what it's like to do the in-center dialysis and then why and how you ended up changing that? Um, So in-center dialysis, that's really, if when you hear dialysis, that's the kind of typically what people think of. And so you go three days a week and you're typically there on average, four hours a day. So I, my chair time, I think, was like 11.30 or so on Monday, Wednesday, Friday. So you get there, and you have to be there a little early. And because if you're not there and ready to get on when they're ready to put you on, like the clinical count you late, and they will shorten your treatment time. And it's important that you get like every minute of that treatment on the machine because that's how your blood gets clean Um, and then you know you're just in a big open room with a bunch of other patients it's cold as heck in there and so you're like all bundled up and in-center is really hard on the body because you're only there three days a week so they want to pull as much fluid off of your body in that four hours and get your blood as absolutely clean as they possibly can, because then you're going to go an entire day without anything. And so at the end of treatment, my blood pressure is usually pretty much in the tank. And and, and I always describe it as like the worst hangover you've ever had three days a week without, without the fun the night before. I have a headache. I'm sick to my stomach. I'm dehydrated. But with, when you're on chemo, you're also restricted in your fluids. I can only have 34 ounces of fluid a day. So I can't just chug a bunch of water or a bunch of Gatorade to like replace everything. So you've done this treatment. It's supposed to make you feel better. And it does. It cleans your blood. But you don't feel great. How are you getting home from your dialysis treatment? 
I lived really close to my uh, dialysis center. So a lot of times I drove myself. Now, should I have probably driven my driven myself home afterwards? Probably not. But it was like a straight shot. But I mean, there were times where like as soon as I pulled in my carport and opened my door, I threw up. Like that's how sick I was after doing treatment. And then I would get home from treatment and I would just lay in bed and sleep until my husband would get home from work. And then we'd start like the whole nightly routine. And then I'd spend, so I could, that was Monday. So then I'd spend Tuesday in bed or on the sofa trying to recover and then go to bed Tuesday night. And then you get up and you do it all again on Wednesday. And it's just like, it's just this constant roller coaster of up and down, up and down, up and down. And you just never really feel human. And the weekends were really hard because I would leave treatment 3.30, like on a Friday. And I'm not going back until 11.30 on Monday. You have two days in a row where you're not doing anything. And it's just really hard on the body. So by the time Monday morning rolled around, I was sick to my stomach. It was just a constant roller coaster. And it affected my husband too, because I never wanted to do anything. I didn't want to go anywhere. So that's the in-center experience for me. So then what made you figure out that there were other options? And like, what was your process to, to transitioning to other options? One of the nurses at the clinic um, was doing like a educational thing one day, talking to all the patients about peritoneal dialysis. And what intrigued me about it the most was I could do it at home, basically on my schedule, which would basically be like while you're asleep. So that was probably, that was about six months in after I'd started doing dialysis when she had talked to me about doing peritoneal. And, and at the time, my doctor did not want me to go on PD because I had the chest tubes in each lung. So he's like, we need to get your lungs cleared up, get these chest tubes out. And then as soon as that last one comes out, then you can do peritoneal. And it, I mean, so it took about another eight or nine months from when I first talked to my doctor to when I got the last chest tube taken out. And I got the last chest tube taken out on my birthday. And everybody was like, you're having this done on your birthday? And I'm like, yes. Like that was the birthday present. My 40th birthday present to myself was getting a chest tube taken out. And like two weeks after I had the peritoneal catheter put in, because I was like, I was ready to go. I'm done going to the clinic, you know, and I'm also kind of a control freak. So I also liked the idea of being able to do it at home and I control my environment. And I liked having more ownership of my dialysis and having more ownership of my health. So I have a catheter um, in my belly and I have a machine. And the way I always describe the process for people to understand have you ever, you know how you have like a bowl of strawberries and you sprinkle sugar on strawberries and that sugar pulls all that fluid out? That's all peritoneal dialysis. Is. So I have two bags of basically sugar solution 
and it cycles through all night. So I have a fill and it's about, I do about one and a half liters at a time. And it sits on me, not quite two hours. And then it drains off me into a bag. And then it starts again. And I do that five cycles. And it takes me personally, it takes about 10 and a half hours. And most people typically do eight hours, like how long you would sleep. I do longer because I don't have as much room to hold as much fluid. Like most people do like a full two liters of fluid. It is very, very painful for me to hold that much fluid. Because imagine like, imagine like a two liter Coke and you drink it in about 10 minutes and then it's going to sit on you for two hours. Like it's not really comfortable. And so over the years, like I've worked with my doctor to get me down. The, the compromise that we've made is I can do one and a half liters, but I go longer to get the longer dwell time to make sure that I am getting all the toxins pulled and all the fluid pulled off. And then once I connect, I'm on the machine and it just runs 10 and a half hours. And then I wake up in the morning and when I'm done, I disconnect and that's it. And then I go about my day. When you were coming home from the in-center, you were not feeling good. How do you feel at the end of a peritoneal dialysis session? I feel a lot better than I did with the hemodialysis. So whether you do home hemodialysis or peritoneal, you're doing it every day. And so you're more steady with getting the fluids removed and getting the toxins cleaned out. And it's not the roller coaster that you experience with hemodialysis. And I feel a lot better. And I get off the machine and fluid and dietary restrictions are not as strict. So I can get off the machine and have some hot tea or coffee. And then I drink water and go about my day. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing, you know, your experience with that. You've mentioned, uh, you, you know, your husband and friends and family being able to help you out. Can you talk a little bit more about the role of caregivers in dialysis, a patient's friends, family, neighbors, and really that kind of, um, I guess, backup assistance that they provide? I think whether it's from transportation or sometimes it's somebody to bring you food or just just mental and emotional support, like you've got to have some type of support system, I think, especially when you do it in the clinic and you sit in the waiting room with all the other patients, you get a sense for who has somebody in their life to help them and who doesn't. And, you know, it's hard to sit there and look at people who, you know, they don't have that support system at home to help them, whether it's to just take care of them when they're done with dialysis or help them prepare their meals. I needed help around the house. You know, my husband had to take on new roles. He had to start cooking dinner. He had to start doing laundry. Like there were things I was just too weak to do. And if you don't have a good support system and you don't have people who can come help you, like, I don't know how you make it through dialysis. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And that's that's a huge part of you know what NKF works on is making sure we have the policies and the supports in place for patients, whether they need a professional caregiver to come into the home or their family caregiver needs support in how to be a good caregiver. And I was going to say, you just touched on something that 
the thing with the caregiver too is that the caregiver is in a position to help the patient. Like, again, we were fortunate that my husband had a boss who was very family focused and very family oriented. And he's like, you need to go take care of your wife. But not everybody has that. Not everybody has that job. Not everybody has that boss. And it puts a caregiver in a very tough situation. Do I take care of my patient or do I take care of my job? Absolutely. And I know that's something NKF is is working on in terms of family leave and family and caregiver medical leave. And that, and we know for our patients that that is so essential. So thank you so much for bringing that up. You mentioned about some of the difficulties that you had personally experienced, but also that you had seen in some of the other patients who were in the dialysis clinic with you. I don't know if you had anything you wanted to expand on about um, what some of the barriers are for patients. Transportation seems to be the number one barrier. And most of the patients that I was in clinic with, they used transportation services, but you know, they're making rounds to other doctor's appointments, other hospitals. So, you know, you get picked up when the transportation service comes and picks you up and you can be sitting in the waiting room for half an hour to an hour before your chair time, just because that's when the transportation service was taking patients to the clinic, or you'll sit there for an hour waiting for them to pick you up after you've had treatment. And I can't even imagine like having to sit there for an hour waiting for somebody to pick you up when you feel as bad as you do and you're about to pass out or you feel like you're going to throw up. So it seemed like transportation was probably the biggest barrier. And then when I switched to peritoneal, I would see some of the patients um, that I had treated with and they'd be like, oh, what are you doing? I'm like, well, I do it at home now. I really think you would like doing it at home and it's great. I hook up at night and it runs while I sleep. And then I disconnect in the morning. I meet my friends for lunch and I can run errands and and it's like, I've got my life back. One woman, one time, she's just like, but I don't have anyone at home who can help me do this. I don't have anyone at home who can help me set it up or I don't have anyone at home if something were to happen that can take care of me. And, you know, it hadn't crossed my mind that like not everybody has somebody at home to help them. And so I think like not having somebody at home should be a reason why someone shouldn't switch to home dialysis. Everybody should have access to home health dialysis nurses who, if you want to do it at home, you should have that access. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up because that is something that we are working on at NKF in terms of getting professional staff into the home to help patients do this uh, and feel comfortable. And you're right. People shouldn't be excluded from this option because you know, their, their life is such that they don't have anyone or the person that they do have at home might have their own illness and not be able to be you know, as supportive. So absolutely hear you on that. And thank you for bringing that up. So before we wrap up, I just wanted to give you the opportunity, if there was anything you specifically wanted to say to policymakers, you know, people who are involved in decisions around dialysis and kidney care, if there's anything specific you would want them to know. Um, I just want them to know, like, we need to really focus on 
kidney disease as a whole, like not just transplant, but, you know, there is a segment of us out there where that's not an option and we need to make dialysis, well, enjoyable is not the word, but, you know, we need to make it as accessible to patients as we can possibly make it. And whether it's, whether it's how patients are treated in center, giving them access to home options and knocking down those barriers, figuring out what are those barriers to dialysis. Like we said, transportation, other socioeconomic issues, and we need to make sure that access to dialysis, access to quality dialysis care is accessible to everybody. Thank you, Elizabeth, so much for your time today and your insights and for all the time you've dedicated to being a kidney patient advocate. I know there are so many other things you deal with in your life, and the fact that you make time to do this is really appreciated. So, Miriam, back to you. I want to go through a little bit more about kind of what dialysis looks like from a larger scale in the U.S. So specifically, you know, how is dialysis paid for? So the Medicare program still covers the majority of people with dialysis. In 1972, uh, the Congress, the U.S. Congress, actually expanded Medicare to cover anyone of any age with permanent irreversible kidney failure, regardless of age. And this includes 80% of the cost of their treatment. So a Medicare beneficiary who is on dialysis still has to pay 20% of the cost of every treatment. And I would imagine that can be very difficult for patients, especially if they don't have a secondary insurer. Absolutely. I think people tend to think that Medicare is a panacea for coverage, but Medicare is quite expensive. And the out-of-pocket expenses, regardless of the insurance, whether it's Medicare, Medicare Advantage, a commercial plan, an employer-based plan, can be really, really burdensome for dialysis patients. And so as we're talking about payment and what this looks like, the dialysis landscape in the U.S. is interesting. Can you talk a little bit about kind of the duopoly that dominates most of the dialysis providers? Definitely. So the majority of dialysis in the United States is provided by two companies. As you said, it's a duopoly. One of the companies is called DaVita. The other company is called Fresenius. So there are very few other dialysis providers than those two, although there are some small, mid-sized providers as well as some nonprofit providers. And yeah, so to clarify, the, the two largest providers, Debita and Bresenius, those are for-profit um, enterprises, correct? Yes. Okay. And I, I have a stat in front of me here that says there are more dialysis clinics in the U.S. than there are Wendy's locations with over 7,500 nationwide. So that kind of, at least uh, when I saw that put in perspective for me, just the scale of what we're talking about here there, you know, we know the kidney disease uh, affects 37 million people that we know of and 80 million people are at risk for it. I have seen studies that indicate we could be expecting over a million patients to be in kidney failure by 2030. And that doesn't even take into account people who may have kidney disease from their COVID exposure, which uh, is another topic we can get into another day. But, you know, specifically when we're talking about 
who is dialyzing and, and where are they dialyzing? I, I know we touched on it earlier that 88% of dialysis treatments in the U.S. are occurring in an outpatient facility, and only 12% of patients are dialyzing at home. Can you just talk a little bit more about what that looks like? And I know Elizabeth touched on that as well. Fill in the picture, if you will, of what home dialysis kind of looks like around the world and then here. Yeah, so as you mentioned, the model of dialysis care in this country has been in-center dialysis for a long time. Um, Davida and Fresenius are starting to really grow their home dialysis numbers in part because of patient demand and also because of policy changes and payment changes. So Davida and Fresenius have both reported figures that are pretty close to 15%, which is a really, really, really impressive growth in home dialysis, but we still are way behind other industrial countries that have put a lot of resources and energy into home dialysis. So Hong Kong is at 75% home dialysis. Iceland is 35% home dialysis. New Zealand, close to 30% home dialysis. I think it is also important to note that, you know, the National Kidney Foundation doesn't favor any kind of modality over the other. We have been working more in the home dialysis space because we've heard from patients that especially during the pandemic, they just feel safer staying and dialyzing at home, not having to worry about the transportation issue, and then just having a little bit of agency on their own and feeling empowered to, to perform the dialysis on their own. And we've heard from many patients that that is important to them. So we are happy to work with our champions in Congress on a bill right now that, among other things, will be providing Medicare coverage to cover the cost of in-home staff assistance to patients during the beginning of their home dialysis treatments, just to kind of help them get accustomed to it, um, kind of serve as a bridge or a coach between the training they get. You know, you, you don't just do home dialysis. You are trained on it and, and prepared to do it. But we did hear from patients that having someone come to the home in the beginning of their treatment to just help them get comfortable. And then also during periods of difficulty, if they're returning from a hospitalization, if they're having some kind of problem, um, to have that that person be able to be there. So we're really happy that, that Congress is working on that bill with us. And fingers crossed, we'll be able to talk about that coming up as a possible win. So I also want to make sure we don't skip over the health disparities that are really, really prevalent in dialysis. We know in kidney disease in general, health disparities are rampant. If you are African-American, you are almost four times as likely um, to have kidney failure. If you're Hispanic or Latino, you are uh, 1.3 times more likely to have kidney failure compared to um, the white population. And we also know that despite being only 13.5% of the population in general, people who identify as Black or African American make up more than 35% of dialysis patients. So we know they're overrepresented in dialysis. Miriam, can you talk a little bit about what that looks like? Yeah, sure. As you said, um, kidney disease and kidney failure are, you know, they're diseases of injustice and determinants of health, like access to healthy food, access to transportation, access to education, factors like mass incarceration play a huge role in the prevalence of CKD and ESRD and make it really difficult for people who are on dialysis to live number one, but also to do home dialysis and to be successful on home dialysis and, and really just to be able to 
live their lives as they want to in a you know patient centered in a patient centered way. So I think when we talk about kidney failure, I, I want us to really realize that this is an example. This is one of the premier preeminent examples of the need for improvements in health equity. We really have to focus on detecting CKD and intervening as early as possible, not just to help people stay off dialysis, but also to prevent them uh, from dying of cardiovascular disease, which is another very, very poor outcome that happens to people on CKD. Yeah. And, and we also know that, you know, we mentioned a couple of times throughout this podcast that some of the major causes of kidney disease and kidney failure, the hypertension, diabetes, obesity, are all also prevalent among um, Black and African Americans. So it's all interrelated. And, you know, one of the things we work on with early detection and making sure patients at risk, so patients who have diabetes, patients who have high blood pressure, patient, patients who are obese are also getting screened for kidney disease. I mean, that assumes they have a, a primary care provider. That assumes they have insurance and they're getting to their annual uh, wellness exams. And that once they are diagnosed, they're being properly connected to the kidney health space. They're getting properly connected to a nephrologist. They're able to do follow-up. They're able to to do diet management and all of these things that we know are related. And you know, NKF is working very closely um, on attacking some of these social determinants of health issues, early detection, awareness, and especially those patients who are already at risk due to other underlying conditions. Yeah, I would say that access to healthcare is actually one of the greatest mediators of inequities in kidney disease. And so it is just really important that people are covered by some health insurance, be it Medicare or Medicaid or an ACA plan or a plan through an employer. It's just getting into the healthcare system is the first step. Absolutely. My, my last point to make is that I think that there is a perception that dialysis is a death sentence. And so people come into the dialysis experience, a third of people still crash into dialysis, meaning that they had no knowledge of kidney failure before they wound up in the emergency room and had a doctor come and tell them you're starting dialysis right away. And so I think that this is just a perception that is throughout the kidney community is that if you're on dialysis, it means the end of your life. And what I think we need to have a cultural shift in how we think about dialysis. It's possible to live a very long time on dialysis, and it's possible to live life on your own terms. And I think we just have to shift the debate, shift the conversation about dialysis so that it really does become more about what do you want out of your life? That is the first thing. How do you want to live? What's important to you? What are your values? What are your preferences? And then match the modality to those preferences and values and passions and hobbies. And I think that will help really shift how we think about dialysis from something that's really constraining and something that feels like a prison to people to a way of living life that aligns with what patients want. Absolutely. And I think, you know, we hear that in Elizabeth's story that, you know, unfortunately, her situation, she will never be eligible for a transplant. She will be on dialysis the rest of her life, but she has been able to exercise, you know, her agency and find a modality that works for her and find the right treatments that work for her. And I mean, luckily, she has supportive friends and family to help her. 
But we, you know, we do need to make sure that we are looking at dialysis patients as a whole person. Dialysis is not the only part of a personality or a person's experience. And for some patients, you know, they don't have any other options. And how can we allow them to live the best life and empower them to be more than, than just their treatment? I think you're spot on with that. I also think it's important to mention that there's a lot of innovation going on and, and we, you know, we can be hopeful. Unfortunately, while dialysis hasn't really changed all that much in 50 years, we are seeing um, projects like Kidney X and other innovations that are trying to, you know, take dialysis from this you know, big hulking machine, if you're on hemodialysis, to a wearable kidney or an implantable kidney or other artificial uh, means that are more mobile and more patient-friendly and more patient-centric. Yeah, and I think not only, you know, it, I think innovations in the machines are, those are here and we're going to see more of them, but there's also a lot of innovation going on with how dialysis is delivered. So what is the prescription? And that is a place where we have seen a lot of innovation and change. And when you talk about the prescription, there are a lot of different ways to do that. And that's one of the advantages of home dialysis is that you kind of match the prescription to how somebody feels, right? You want to make sure that they're getting adequate dialysis and that, you know, they're meeting all the appropriate biochemical parameters. But then it really is about how do you feel? And I think it's important to note that that's innovative too. Awesome. Miriam, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast to uh, talk to us more about dialysis. And Elizabeth, uh, it was so fabulous to have you here. And I wish you all the luck. Elizabeth can be found um, at our Kidney Patient Summit and a lot of our advocacy activities. And we are so thankful for all the time she donates um, to us to, to really share that patient experience. So coming up on the podcast, we will introduce our new director of transplant policy and dig deeper into the world of transplant, which is really uh, a fascinating and interesting area uh, of the kidney space. And I can't wait to talk with you all about that uh, in a little bit. So thank you so much for listening to the podcast and stay tuned and we'll talk to you soon. Please let us know what you think by emailing policypodcast at kidney.org. That's policy podcast, one word, at kidney.org. And I hope you'll stick around for future episodes. Uh, we plan to dig into chronic kidney disease, kidney failure, dialysis, transplantation, and health disparities, among other topics. If you're looking for additional information on kidney health and kidney policy, feel free to check out our website at www.kidney.org. And thanks for listening.